This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjure up the stolen data tapes, or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden fort. your lack of faith disturbing. Enough of this. Vader, release him. As you wish. <sighs> Glop is brought to you by the fine folks at Encounter Books. This week's featured title is The Smart Society, Strengthening America's Greatest Resource, Its People, by Peter D. Salins. For 15% off this or any title... Use the coupon code RICOCHET, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, of course, at EncounterBooks.com. Well, welcome to another edition of Glop Culture. I'm uh, John Podhoritz, sitting just uh, yards away on the uh, on the an 11th. An intern's throw. An intern's throw away wow. from Jonah Goldberg, who is in his palatial office down the hall from the temporary quarters that I'm sitting in at the American Enterprise Institute Hey Jonah, how are you? I am I am well, John, and it's nice to have you uh, you know, here with your bullpen of writers cuz like I uh I, I walk down the corridor and there are commentary writers to the left of me and commentary writers to the right of me and they're all great and uh and I'm reminded of the uh of the deep importance of um think tanks like uh, the American Enterprise Institute which give an intellectual home to uh, people who clearly uh, would now have very inhospitable quarters on any college campus uh, in yeah. the country because of their political to, views. Or if they're only to rely on commentary. No, they could only rely on commentary, uh, but they would have to you know, live in encampments <laughs> in Zuccotti Park yeah. and throw the Occupy Wall Street people out so they could – Well, that would be interesting. That would be so. interesting. But if they husbanded their money with, with their ricochet money – Yeah. Yes. Well, they exactly. could get even better refrigerator boxes in Zuccotti. Well, what those people should do is they should get get, get together and, and, sh- and form little communes somewhere in some rural area with like dial up and now, uh, of course, share it. Of course, that is the voice of uh, Ricochet, uh, co co conspirator, co chief, co head, uh, and Hollywood smart guy Rob Long, uh, the 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 third the third yes. leg of the troika, the third wheel of the tricycle. I can I consider myself the the law of the glop. <laughs> he is the law. He is the law. Jonah is the G. People wonder what it stands for. Jonah G. Goldberg is the G. On the law. I'm the and P. You're the P. That's right. I'm the P. You're the and P. Rob is the yeah. law. But Rob is the big wheel of the tricycle. And he fought the law. <laughs> the and the law won. I did. And I would like to just break in here for a minute. This is, you know, <laughs> thank God bandwidth is free. Um, to say that if you are listening to this podcast and you are a member of Ricochet, we thank you. We are pleased to have you along the ride with us and to be a fellow member with us. If you are listening to this podcast and you are not a member of Ricochet, go to ricochet.com, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T.com. Check it out. It is the fastest-growing, smartest, most civil conversation on the web among and between our contributors and members. It's growing fast. It's got uh, some good stuff. You get a zillion podcasts if you join. 
you also get a chance to interact with and, and uh, network with and in other ways join conversations with some of the smartest people in the country. Our premise is that there's a little too much one-way conversation going on, not only here but uh, on radio and certain cable news channels. Our side tends to sit and listen, and that's not the way to get things going and changing. We should get participating. So please join ricochet.com and uh, keep us afloat for another uh, year or two. In time for our celebration in November where we are definitely, okay, we are definitely going to win these midterms. That's done. It We're going to win this it back. That's done. So we can start celebrating now, right? Well, you know, um, never say that. do that when you read those articles? You think, uh, I don't know. Never say, never, never say never. But, uh, and, you know, there's a long way between now and November. But if anything uh, appears to be baked in the cake, it is um, a defiant turn away from uh, the Democrats and Obama. Um, all this polling, three yeah. different polls this week show um, Republicans in in a better position than they were in 2010 when they won 63 seats in the House. Um, you wanna, I want to grab certain Republicans that I, that I know and I'm sure we know together – who were very excited in 2012, who thought we were going to win, and point to these numbers and say, no, no, see, this is good polling. <laughs> this is actually – this actually says something. You know? <laughs> um, um, but, and it's getting harder and harder for me to walk around and say the same thing, which I would love to do, which is that we're going to lose. We're going to lose because we, it doesn't look like it. Well, Isn't there I'm, some social I'm, issue out there that they can use? And I don't know. Well, when, sure. I, say bake, when I say baked in the cake – what I what I mean by that is that is that these numbers are mm, not only cake. consistent cake. <laughs> these numbers are not only consistent over the last five months, but they are trending. They were they were bad for Democrats at the beginning of the year after a blip upward around the time of the government shutdown in October. But they were bad at the beginning of the year. They are now trending downward. Now the trend there's a there's a floor. And I'm not a political under the trend. Trending downward is bad, right? Yeah, you generally want an arrow I'm not pointing a pole guy. Up. I'm not a quant guy. Yeah. I'm no Me- Nate's Remember the old Newsweek conventional wisdom box? <laughs> yeah. Up arrow was better. That's all. Up arrow was yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and you know, um, I think I continue to think that there are eerie analogies in this year 2014 to uh to 2006 when this is the sixth year of obama's presidency that was the sixth year of george w bush's presidency and what you had then as you have now is um the nation turning against iraq so that you know the core republican support for George W. Bush and the Republicans remained where it was, but everybody else basically turned against it. And what we're now seeing with Obamacare, despite it hitting its numbers of 8 million and, right. you know, just throw numbers out. The other day, uh, Jesse Lee of the White House was tweeting numbers of people enrolled in, you know, state exchanges. It's, it was like 273,811. It's like, Great. What does that mean? It means nothing. So, um, running a little Hollywood, we should, people do this in, on the weekends. Um, when you have um, a movie that's a little in a little bit of trouble, uh, uh, or it's a competitive weekend, they'll start uh, releasing 
projected box office numbers on Friday for the weekend to come, the weekend on Saturday and Sunday. And they'll actually refer to they, – they'll give you this incredibly complicated mathematical statistical justification for that. Well, the model says this. The model says that. But what all they end up doing is doing – is calling attention to the fact on Monday when the numbers do come in. I mean the numbers do come in. That's the problem with, with lying about this stuff. It comes in on Monday or Tuesday. You actually get the number. And if the number is lower than they projected, uh, uh, everybody – everything goes haywire. I mean it happened this weekend with, with Spider-Man. Spider-Man I think made $91 million. Spider-Man 2 or 3 or 9 or 27 or whatever the hell it is. No, it's Spider-Man and, 2 Part 2. It's Spider-Man. It's the new iteration uh, of Spider-Man uh, Part 2. So ne- the next thing they yeah. do is the third iteration of Spider-Man Part 1. Then they go back no, to no, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Yeah. Then they go back to the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. That's Part 4. Yeah, that's, that's, and then they come Spider-Man. back to the Andrew... Yeah. Garfield Spider-Man, which will be part three. And now we'll really go back because we'll go to Nicholas Hammond, the star of TV's Amazing Spider-Man in 1978. That will be part seven, and he's 92 years old. So, Uh, Hey, did you see it? Jonah, did you see it? I have not seen it yet. Are you going to? Of course I'm going to. Who do you – Rob, do do you even know who I am? I know. I I said that for the benefit of the new listeners. Um, Uh, I've seen it. You saw it, of course. You I saw, saw it. You saw it because you 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 are compelled to see every single thing. I'm I'm, I'm compelled by by the need to pay uh, private school tuition to oh, see I... movies so I can write about them. Thumbs up, thumbs um, down. It's not very good, uh, and particularly you know the second of the first Spider Man, you know the second Tobey Maguire Spider Man, I think remains maybe next to the Dark Knight the best comic book movie ever made, and this is pretty weak uh it's okay i mean it's watchable but it's yeah it's it's weak and you know i mean the 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 strange thing about these comic book movies now is that they literally all have the same ending i mean it's 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 bizarre they all end on a street in midtown manhattan where a building falls it's down. It's terrible. And the, um, no, but I mean, like, so go to Chicago, you know, go somewhere else. Well, like, but go you know, to, just have a problem go to Kansas movies, City. Is they spend all this money on effects, right? And those things come right out of Spider-Man's hand and his faces, all that stuff. They spend all that money on that CGI. And then they hire, because the, now their budget's too too high. So they're doing that giant city scene where the city falls and there's a crazy psychopathic whatever it is villain is flying around on some contraption and they're banging into buildings and every every movie is the same. These are terror. I hate all of these movies for this reason. And 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 then they and there's always like four people on the street, like a woman with a baby carriage of some <laughs> ambiguous ethnicity, and then another person and a guy in a cab. And they're always pointing up. They 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 pay for four extras. Right. There's no scale on any of these movies. Right. Because they well, just, you know, because they're just, oh, we'll fix it later in the thing. We'll put more. What they, I know what they say is that we'll put more people in later, but it always right. looks fakey. So they, they say they always oh, stick with the five. But I mean, I think it's very interesting because I think this is now the fifth or sixth movie uh, of this sort in the last two years that ends with buildings falling down with a giant thing shooting things at in the in Midtown Manhattan, like. You know, right. they could go to, they could go to Yankee Stadium. You know, they could they go to people there. That's they the could problem. go to Hoboken, New Jersey. There are people. I don't in Hoboken. know. I know. I, I can't. But I mean, it, it's also when you're in the story meetings, 
it was already done, you know, like the Avengers made a billion dollars. They destroyed Midtown Manhattan. It was like the big scene that everybody loved. The Transformers destroyed Chicago. Superman you know, destroyed, do, you know, basically New York, right? The last Superman, re- Man of Steel. Yeah, that's right. Ballers. That's right. That was the same thing. Destroyed New York. Smallville was uh, like Iron Man. I, <laughs> <laughs> Iron Man. Iron Man destroys Malibu, destroys a nice Ventura house in Malibu. I mean, it's like okay, enough already. Like, right, here's uh, two, two, two weird points. One weird point is that it was that the, this movie, Spider Man, so, had to make. This is not like politics. People said this on to me on Wednesday or on Thursday. This movie had to make one hundred million dollars over the weekend. <laughs> it had to. They spent one hundred million to launch it, so they need to. You know, usually it's a one to one ratio on the first weekend. The first weekend's kind of a kabuki event. You're just right. trying to generate enough momentum to get you through the the, the on screen release. And it uh, it made ninety one, which is actually a lot of money, but not enough. So that is so people, sad. Yeah, people are in this weird position of this movie's not unsuccessful, but it's not successful. Couldn't and, they? Couldn't people just be a little more generous? Don't they know? <laughs> don't yeah. they know that Sony put up two hundred and seventy five yeah. million dollars to make this movie? I mean, you yeah, know, the selfishness. The selfishness. Is, yeah, it's a huge number. Right? I mean, what was that? In yen, that's a huge number. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. It's yeah. like yeah, yeah. It's like but no, uh, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's right? like the number of it's like the number of signups to Obamacare in yen. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. these are box office numbers that are they're yeah. kind so of lying about. I it. think if we they have a target, they they miss the target, and now everybody's busy disassembling. But the thing about it is that no executive in a movie studio is constitutionally required to eventually tell the truth. <laughs> Whereas those guys, well, that's okay because no, no one, no one in Washington apparently is constitutionally obliged to tell the truth either. <laughs> well, as we just as we just heard, as we just heard that uh, that John Kerry has decided that he is uh, not simply not going to accept a subpoena from the um, from the House uh, Oversight Committee investigating Benghazi. He's just not going to. He's uh, going to do whatever he wants to do and not uh, not cooperate. Um, which is, you know, interesting. I mean, it it's, creates it's an interesting. Work. Well, I mean, it's a nego- one. You could say that it's a negotiating strategy, so that you know he can get, so that they can delay it, so that you know they don't both want a confrontation and all of this. But you know, clearly, the the White House and the Obama administration are very tempted by the notion that they they should push the boundaries of what any other administration has done because they know, even if they don't know that they know it or they don't admit or they don't say it openly, they know that the media are not going to hold them to account for it and that the media are just going to continue to carry water for them on the grounds that, you know, this is just a politicized uh, investigation into into nonsense. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, but that's, that's what Cheryl, Cheryl, Cheryl Atkins. Okay, you, you, you go, yeah, John. I right. You wrote the thing about it for, you know, you guys. Go ahead. Right. No, 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 no. I wrote it for, for ricochet.com. Yeah, you can find yeah. my thoughts on this on ricochet.com, but I'd rather hear Jonah's thoughts. Okay. So um, as, as Rob uh, cogently and, and succinctly <laughs> summarized on ricochet.com. Uh, Those which words you, have never been strung together in that order. Go ahead. Which you can join for the cost of a single cup of coffee. Uh, um. Cheryl Atkinson basically made this point that she said that the administration has tried to confer, uh, uh, controversialize, um, which I agree with Rob is not a great word, um, the Benghazi thing, to make it seem like it's 
a conspiracy theory, right? And you hear Jay Carney up there, who every day looks more and more like um, Kevin Bacon in Animal House, saying "Remain calm, all is well" as he gets stampeded, um, is saying, you know, this is a conspiracy theory in search of a conspiracy. It's all about kooks and weirdos. This is very much out of the Clinton playbook, and it would not surprise me at all if this wasn't written. This script mm-hmm. wasn't really written by the Clintons um, because they they actually have more to protect than Obama does at this point. And it's, it's the attempt to make it seem as if trying to get to the bottom about why we didn't send uh, forces in to save an American ambassador while he, they were trying to murder him over a seven-hour battle is a kooky thing to ask. And they're trying to make it seem as if it's all sort of of a piece with birtherism. You can always tell Obama's in trouble when he starts making birther jokes again. Because right. what he's trying to do is make it seem as if he's the only sane man in town and that all of his enemies are kooks and weirdos and, and sort of of the sort of <laughs> yeah. Calvin Bundy crowd, and, which I'm not saying that Calvin Bundy is a weirdo, but he's trying to take that sort of thing and turn everybody, all of his opponents, into definitional cranks. And that's I would just, uh, I would just like to say, for the record, that I think uh, that Calvin, Cliven, whatever the hell his name is, Bundy is a weirdo. So, so I, I basically, I, I'm going to really, go with the weirdo. I'm going to uh, go Nevada with the weirdo on that. you're surrounded by feds who doesn't pay his taxes. <laughs> I yeah. just don't think so I'm just going to go with the weirdo on that. But it's not productive to get into a big debate about Clive and Bundy because the only people who no, but, have very strong feelings about it will yeah, disagree with you. They will disagree and, and they will disagree heatedly and they will send very angry uh, emails and be very nasty. I would say this, that um, it's, a, it's a successful strategy, the controversialization of, right. of, of all of these things. And it's an, it, it's, it's, it will be interesting to see, assuming that at some point before the 22nd century there is a Republican president, whether, whether this tactic, which um, I think uh, isn't, isn't sort of has, is the result of a happy circumstance uh, for them. It's not that planned because the what happens is these these events, including you know, including the IRS scandal and various other things, are very confused. Things happen in odd ways. Um, uh, timing gets to be a weird question right. of when this report is released and when that memo was sent and all of that. Um, so I don't think that like it was all planned from the beginning, um, but it really does depend on. Uh, a media not a media yeah. going thus this far and no farther to say, well, I don't know. I'm kind of skeptical about that. Or is the presumption something outrageous happened here and we are going to get to the bottom of it? And that is what does not happen in relation to Obama and the mainstream media. They do not no, say. I mean, and, and when anyone does that for that, that, like Cheryl Atkinson, that person's fired. Right. So it's a pretty startling thing. And, you know, this is where uh, some of the, the, the writing that people have done, Matt, Matt Continetti at the Free Beacon and in Commentary and others, about the extraordinarily close social ties between, you know, the Washington media and the Obama administration, the number of, you know, uh, leading officials who have spouses who either work in the administration or work at high levels of the Democratic Party and are at high levels in the D.C. media. And, of course, just the simple social fact that they travel in the same circles. A lot of them went to the same schools. They've known each other for years. And I know this myself as somebody who, you know, had comparable relationships 
with you know people in conservative white houses that you know I know these pe- I know th- I know these people and I know them to be you know nice and well-meaning and good and I like them and they're friends of mine and I want them to be nice to me and and all that and so I would be inclined to think better of them than worse of them and so this this is an enduring problem and it's then compounded I think by by the sense that you know uh in the end um Democrats are, you know, fighting for good things and Republicans are just trying to destroy them out of peak, you know, and uh, yeah, and, and it's the search for political advantage. The comparison that everyone wants to make, which I get so tired of, it's sort of like for remember how for 40 years, basically all foreign policy issues had to be brought back to Vietnam. Um, we still have this thing where everything has to be brought back to Watergate. Um, and I don't think this is Watergate. I don't you know, in terms of the Benghazi part of it, I don't think it's anything like that. But I do no. think. The, the the really instructive analogy that gets to sort of this point and, and to John's point is the Valerie Plame thing where you have right. the right. D.C. Washington press corps go bat, bat guano crazy about the Valerie Plame thing where if you talk to anybody in the intelligence community, it was – it was not a nothing burger, but it was – It was close. It was really, really close. And no one in the intelligence community thought it was the kind of thing that needed to be criminally investigated or any of that kind of stuff. But the Washington press corps convinced itself, even though they kind of knew that this wasn't – this didn't go back to the Bush White House, that it was something that they had to follow down you know, into uh, you know, north of the wall in Westeros to get to the truth of. <laughs> and um, and now the Benghazi thing, which is so – I like that. It's yours. Um, it's, <laughs> I'll steal it anyway. You don't have to tell me. I, I can steal it. I was going to steal it no matter what. See, when, whenever I'm out in L.A. and I meet all of these like underemployed or unemployed uh, TV writers like who park my car or get me a latte, I give them little like one-line references and analogies like that as a tip. Um, that's that's really generous. Oh, that's so sweet. I'm sure they're really thrilled like to have yeah. to have yeah. extra material yeah. they didn't need. Hey, this yeah. is a great this is a great latte. Write this down. You can use this. Use this. <laughs> okay, use can this we in, use this we, in a blog we, post? Okay, can we transition to to Game of Thrones now yeah. uh, in oh, our in our because here's what I want to point out you to you. See how I teed that Thrones. up? You see how good I am? How I, I like that. Was such a good, good segue. You, you know how good you that, are. It's such a good segue that we've left your your deep thought. In, hanging oh. entirely, and no one will ever know what it is. But we are going to move on to Game of Thrones. Here's my you point. Wandered off like an Alzheimer's patient in the snow. I don't even remember what it is now. So go on. I would, I would <laughs> like to point <laughs> out that uh, the world of sort of high-end feminist criticism uh, has gone totally uh, bat guano crazy, as Jonah would say. What? Over, <laughs> over the over. This um, scene uh, a couple of weeks ago in Game of Thrones, where the uh, where the in- spoiler where alert. The in- do I have to do a spoiler alert? It was like well, three no. weeks ago. I don't know. I've seen it. I just you know in case okay. listeners. Spoiler alert. Okay, so okay. skip ahead. Okay, where um, the uh, incestuous couple Cersei and Jaime uh, Lannister are grieving over the uh, the tomb of their of their rotten horrible. Uh, uh, spawn uh joffrey poisoned at his own wedding um and um and and jamie uh basically rapes cersei um and when asked and suddenly we had this oh it's very disturbing 
it's very disturbing how Game of Thrones portrays an incestuous a rape scene where you know because you know in <laughs> in Westeros how they in, portray that in, in Westeros a, a land a land with dragons and snow covered zombies where you know this brother and sister are throwing children off buildings this guy who you know the show begins with this guy Jamie throwing a 5 year old kid out the window um because while he, his sister watches while he's having the, sex yeah. with his sister while his his future victim his but future really victim. but really uh, this really went too far i'm sorry it's one thing to have incest with your with your sister and to throw children off the roof but you know no means no even in Westeros, no mean, no should mean no, you know? So um, this strikes me as an astonishing sort of like development of, you know, the politicization of everything. I mean, what, what, you know, what, yeah, yeah. Well, Game of Thrones is a, is a, you know, is a, either a portrait of or a, or a worshipful testament to a perverted, sexually perverted, deviant, disgusting immoral world and so there's a you know and this couple is the you know personification of that and we're now we're supposed to sort of like say well i'm sorry game of thrones has gone too far well yeah i I remember read i read some of the jamie lannister freak out things and and what i liked was i can't remember it was the new republic or some comedy page in huffington post which these days is very difficult to tell the two apart um where this uh this woman was making the case that um, there was an implicit contract with the viewer because we were starting to like Jamie Lannister more as he started to care for the gargantuan uh, woman, who, you know, whatever. That Brienne we, of Tarth. Bri- Brienne of Tarth. That we were, we were starting to, to like him and he was being rehabilitated as a character – and so it was a betrayal of the audience's expectations that he raped his own sister. <laughs> and I look, I mean, I, I agree with John and Tommy. Look, I mean, last season, Theon Dre- Greyjoy was castrated. You know, and you didn't get any sort of hyper political. The, the names are absurd, though. I have to say the names are absurd. But go ahead. Yeah, because it's the it's the names that really ruin your ability to suspend disbelief, right? Kind of, uh, you know, honestly, <laughs> it's the dragons and the names, all the names of you know. Sir, by the way, sir, by the way, uh, by the way, even George. I would like R. to controversialize R. this. Yeah. Even George Ronald Reagan Martin, the uh, the author of the ten thousand word, uh, ten thousand page, uh, five volume, uh, endless, pointless novel series was um, d- decided that it would be politically prudent for him to say, I really think that went a little, uh, that really went a little too far. I mean, really. Uh, you know, is I, there I no decency? That. Is there no decency anymore on television? I don't watch the show that much because it just, it, to me, it's a little, it's a little too, many, uh, too many, this is the dagger of Wuch, and we're going to the fire pits of Mulch. Oh, too much of that and the flying dragons and just everyone sort of pompously standing on a soap. It all just, it's just, I'm not would crazy. Would you like it better if the dragons walked? Maybe I would like it better if there were walked. no dragons. I don't like – to me, I have no imagination, OK? So for me, for to me to enjoy something, it has to have happened or be Listen, something at the that end, could have happened. Excuse me. At the end of the first book of Game of Thrones, uh, Daenerys, the mother of dragons, breastfeeds the dragons. Yeah, that's got to hurt. She breastfeeds the dragons. So Talk I about think, steamed milk, huh? 
I, I'm, just doing, I'm just doing bits here. Talking about a cappuccino. I just think. I just think. Are we having? Are we seriously having a moral debate over the over the portrayal of over but the I portrayal of incestuous? Ra- okay, so you saw the I scene, saw that and scene, and yeah, he. I I don't know. She consents. Well, that's she what the consents. director. By the way, that's what the director said. The director said eventually it becomes consensual, and that was oh my goodness! <laughs> no, I know. Who could got, say I, such a thing? How I, dare you? This is a microaggression of a very high order. Even saying that because it <laughs> really hurts. It really, really hurts my feelings that you yeah. said that. So I believe you should be arrested and killed. But, but whereas there are actual, actual rapes in which the which uh, you know the. There's the one little hut they maybe keep cutting back to, where where they they are literally raping women, and those people are all punished. I think they're all thrown in, on a giant yeah, fire. But- the whole thing is so insanely violent. However, I do watch it on Sunday nights, and when I watch Mad Men, and I, I wish there was a little more Game of Thrones and Mad Men, and a little more Mad Men and Game of Thrones. I have to say, I, I think those are those would be better off if they were one show. I wish, I wish. That Mad Men weren't the deadest, dullest, most boring, pointless show ever made. That's, That's what, what I mean. I wish. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. yeah, but you're watching it. I stopped watching it because I would go to it's like, wow, that's really great wallpaper they got there. Yeah, but John, John, look, it is at, good wallpaper. look at See, that thing, wallpaper. See, John, the thing that you're missing is that uh, – so when did you give up? Like last season or the season before? It yeah, has gotten – Yeah. It has gotten so much deader and so much more pointless. It's kind of fascinating. Like you didn't think it could get more sort of existentially flatlined. And it does. And that I kind of find compelling for some reason. Um, I find it compelling because uh, Matthew Weiner, the the, uh, the writer, the guiding genius of Mad Men, makes $30 million a season – to produce this thing that is watched by 850,000 people a week. Um, right. And, uh, and it, it, it remains the uh, greatest uh, piece of um, uh, it's the greatest media bubble, pop culture media bubble in history. This is an unsuccessful television program that the market has rejected. And yet for, for complex reasons, a AMC, uh, is committed to it and treats well, it as though it is. They're not complex at all. It's, it's hugely valuable to AMC. Okay. Before before Mad Men, nothing. After Mad Men, you have a you have a, a, a going concern with crypto TV. It, as a unit, doesn't make any money. And you're absolutely right. As a unit, it's it, it's hard to argue. However, it was it was a lead into what is the most popular, most uh, one of the most watched one hour dramas ever, The Walking Dead, which is an international right. hit. So it's like you right. can't. But, you know, that's the, the thing about it. Dead. You can't go backwards. You can't go backwards and say, "Well, they yeah. should have just had the Walking Dead." They wouldn't have had the Walking Dead had Fair they enough. not had a Mad Men. You know. Fair enough. But they also don't need to pay Matthew Weiner thirty because they can say, "That's wonderful. You're a great man. You got us into this business. Here's a here's a hearty handshake yeah. and go." No, no, away. I don't but disagree with that. But they didn't. John, let me ask you: yeah. do you, uh, do you honestly think that Mad Men is more of sort of an elite PBS porn boutique? market failure kind of show as you were describing it than girls but remember yeah. girls is cheaper girls is cheaper and the dynamics of hbo are much different from the dynamics yeah. of, okay. of a network like amc because all eight hbo runs but that's on an excellent buzz. point Jim. 
HBO, the whole point about girls is that HBO is a network that needs people to either subscribe or resubscribe or keep subscribing. And they do it simply by anything that is talked about is good for HBO because it gives the impression that there are things on this network that you absolutely have to watch or that you might want to watch if you haven't watched it yet or that you may watch someday or even if you don't like it, it's sort of hip to watch it. So it's a different, it's a different market. It's then uh, from from the market for 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 AMC. But I would argue that Girls, at least in the first the first season of Girls, was a vastly better show uh, than Mad Men ever was. But let us say, if we mm. can, uh, as I was saying, I will uh, uh, I will second uh, Joni. You're you're very judicious. Hmm. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Really? First, really? I would but, really? rather yeah, watch The Mad Men than the first season of Girls again. Oh, absolutely. Me too. Uh, well, I, I just I, – I, I don't agree with you guys. But that's okay because, you know, disagreement – we can have civil disagreements here. I would like to controversialize your statements. Uh, please do. Um, and speaking of controversialized uh, statements and, uh, uh, and, and matters of intellectual interest and intrigue – uh, this episode of Glop is brought to you, as we said at the opening, by Encounter Books. This week's feature title, The Smart Society, Strengthening America's Greatest Resource, It's People, by Peter D. Salins. The Smart Society offers a detailed blueprint for how the United States can recast its human capital policies to make all Americans, not just a privileged elite, smarter and more successful than ever before, at the same time stemming the size and cost of its welfare state. The spectacular centuries-long success of the United States is based on its having determined early on to be a smart country, single-mindedly developing institutions and practices that encouraged and enabled its native-born citizens to maximize their economic and social potential and welcoming opportunity-seeking foreigners to join them. Over the last four decades, however, the vaunted United States human capital machine has been breaking down, dimming the economic and social prospects of millions of Americans, crowding the nation's welfare rolls and prisons, and sharply inflating the size and cost of the nation's safety net. So for 15% off this extremely provocative title, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. Our thanks to EncounterBooks for sponsoring GLOP. Um, and it's interesting that we are that that uh, that this uh, that the Smart Society by Peter Salins comes up because, of course, we are in a big debate over capital, human capital, capital in the twenty first century, um, capital, 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 inequality, capital, human capital, lock glass of capital. Um, somehow, the word capital has uh, returned. Uh, you know, one 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 had hoped that the that the that the whole notion of uh, of Marx's uh, conception of capital had died with the end of the Cold War, but one one discovers twenty years after the Cold War that uh, that there are certain arguments that need to be made and remade and remade. Among them, things like you know when you when you assume somehow that. Uh, uh, when you when you believe in uh, ridiculous theories like the surplus value of labor, or that you know Russia might say have a have a legitimate uh, territorial claim to Ukraine, um, or it's that, all coming you know, back. Uh, yeah, it's all coming back, and we're going to have to fight the same fights that we were fighting when you know we all got into this fight in the first place. And it's kind of exhausting, you know. Um, William Phillips, who was the longtime uh, editor of Partisan Review, um, and which was notable, so it was the it was the greatest literary was the greatest sort of 
high culture magazine probably published in the history of the United States. And I found it too. Philip <laughs> Phillips <laughs> Phillips was a was an anti communist, um, uh, you know, man of the left, but an anti communist. And uh, when the '60s arose, uh, he was uh, teaching, I think, at Rutgers, uh, the notable Rutgers, which has now uh, covered its head in shame yet again. And um, he was asked some question about, you know, the evils of uh, of uh, American imperialism and the and the and the and the glories of Marxism Leninism, and and Phillips said that uh, these uh, for, to him. These questions were so old that he could no longer remember the answers. <laughs> and I forgot, is, that the, is that the true attribution of that story? Because I've heard that so is, many versions of that. Okay. That, is the, that is the true attribution of that story. <laughs> I learned uh, something today. That's great. I like and, that. I like that phrase. It is a great phrase. And, and I'm stealing I'm, so much today. I'm, I'm finding it now. My other favorite thing is that some, when some, 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 maybe you can help me. Somebody answered a question. So some liberal or progressive is answering a question and or said something, and someone and the response was that que- that answer's not even wrong, <laughs> which I enjoy. I don't know if I said that. Uh-huh. It's not well, even the wrong. Other, the other great, the other great late deflationary late sixties uh, story. My favorite, the late deflationary late sixties story was um, at the University of Chicago, a school that like the city itself has a healthy, um, inferiority complex. Um, there was a huge, massive, you know, anti-Vietnam war demonstration. The administration building was occupied and shut down and there were thousands of people on the quad and the great radicals of Chicago were speaking at an impromptu, you know, with microphones. And, um, I think it was, uh, David Dellinger, uh, who was one of the leaders of the Chicago left at the time, stood there uh, in front of the mic and he began his speech by saying, why are we here? And a voice from the crowd yelled out, because we didn't get into Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) So every now and then then there was a bright spot of deep cynicism and worldliness that popped up in the in the the nightmare that was the late 1960s george will talking about these eternal arguments george will tells the story about how when he was at oxford um who's the guy who wrote the magisterial three volume thing about trotsky doisenberg deutscher isaac deutscher isaac deutscher right Uh, i did it was it was rob long the magisterial one no i did the magisterial one oh oh, that wasn't you that wasn't so, you. Yeah, no, I, I did the yeah. magisterial one. He did the re- other one. When the, I guess the second volume or something of Deutscher's, not Rob Long magisterial, just pretty good uh, <laughs> biography of, of Trotsky came out. They had a par- the Marxists at Oxford had a party for it, and um, apparently the main speaker said proof that Trotsky of proof of Trotsky's brilliance was that none of his predictions have come true yet. which i always thought was a great line so Uh the other great the another great trotsky story is that one 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 day i I know in the 19 teens podcast of nerds go ahead no this trotsky was uh in america on some speaking tour yeah and he and he went to uh he was in new york and he went to the bronx to give a speech and he began his speech as follows. This is either apocryphal or it's so true that it's 
it, it might as well be apocryphal because it's so good. Um, he said, workers and peasants of the Bronx. That's <laughs> <laughs> how he began his speech. That's that's how I think of the Bronx. Yeah, I, it, but I think it, probably from a different perspective. Yeah, there were, came, hey, you know, small world department. Trotsky came to my grandmother's garment factory and yeah. spoke to the workers there. Well, well, Why I know. Let him. She was one of. The, she was at a sewing machine. She like looks up. Oh, and just, oh, I, oh, I see. Yeah. I know a. Uh, yeah, I, I know a. Assume, uh, Jonah, that you're, when you said that my grandmother's uh, gar- garment shop that she that she was an owner. I no, know that, a con- that was my grandfather. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. I, I know a conservative uh, pundit whom I will not name who believes that his grandmother had an affair with Trotsky in Mexico. In- that's that's good, and you know Trotsky's uh, grandson lives on the West Bank in a settlement. Is that it right? was his last so, name Trotsky? Yep. And John, I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer the question since this is closer to home for you. Yes. But Rob, do you know what famous Hollywood personality interned at Commentary Magazine? No, I I'll do g- not. I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. hoo Really? No. Al Pacino? Yeah. Al Pacino. How Al Pacino was, was the good? office boy at Commentary in 1961. Wow. Was he the over was He was 18 years old. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. I was, deliver these <laughs> messages to everyone in the hall of us. All of us. Enjoy your messages. He kept getting the sandwich orders wrong, and so like he kept saying, "Every time I try to get out, they pull me back in." <laughs> this is not the corned beef I asked for. <laughs> so anyway, there's yeah, that. so my my you know so yeah, Norman. No, it's, your, your dad. It's, it's, I think it's really I had true. the I think I had the egg salad, and he grabs your dad, he kisses him, and says, "I knew it was you, Norman. I knew it was you." It breaks my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow you knew all of that. Uh, 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 right. But now, can, can, since we're, we're going to like rethinking first things, yes. Uh, and I, I feel like I can bring this up because, of course, I don't. Uh, it's all intellectual to me. Uh, a Ricochet member, Frank Soto, uh, one of our brilliant and uh, and and thoughtful and and great writer, a great writer. We have there's so many members that are really great writers. It's amazing. Uh, it's all. I'm, I'm so glad they all have uh, day jobs because uh, if they didn't, they would. They're they'd have big careers. Um, Frank Soto write, uh, uh, writes a roundup of the new monogamy rethink uh, on on uh, on Ricochet, but it comes partly also from a New Republic article, <laughs> which believes that it's time to rethink monogamy. That uh, it's a moral trinket, and that you'll eventually, since everybody knows that romantic infatuation goes away. Uh, why are we pretending otherwise? So, John and Jonah, why are you pretending? <laughs> well, uh, I would just like to say that the author of that of that piece of the uh, New Republic piece, yeah, of the New Republic piece, um, I believe is, if I'm not mistaken, oh, you know what? I'm wrong. So I was going to say something nasty about someone. I believe it's uh, it's the wrong. Uh, well, we could still say something nasty. Come on. 
No, um, no. Uh, there <laughs> was a, a drive-by. No, Here's there a was a that's slate, not related. Like, no, I'm sorry. There was a there was a piece in Slate that largely made the same argument by 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 a writer who once wrote an incredibly nasty profile of me, um, and uh, and so I was going to insult her. But uh, well, in, no, this, in fact, this piece in, in the New Republic is written by Helen Croydon. Right. But, that isn't that there, isn't there, the person it is I was part thinking. Of a, of. There is a, this movement. These people writing these these pieces, and someone apparently wrote one in Slate whose name was. Uh, Hannah like Hannah Rosen and and she apparently said uh, did a terrible uh, so say something mean she about her she she well <laughs> anyway well, what no, what's, interesting, what's interesting wow. is that Hannah, Hannah Hannah Rosen interviewed in in Slate interviewed uh, this um, uh, this uh, couples therapist named Esther Perel who sort of makes the same argument that I you know we're losing mystery we're losing mystery in our marriage and you know. Affairs, people shouldn't look at affairs as being bad for marriage. You know, they could just, they're just a blip blip, or maybe they lead to new closeness or something like that. And of course, the interesting thing is that Hannah Rosen, who did 15 or 16 years ago write a really appallingly nasty profile of me for New York Magazine that had uh, at at last count 18 uh, errors of fact uh, in in 4,000 words. Um, not, not that you were keeping score, though. No, no. Oh, I, oh, I, I was. I was keeping I'm, score. All I can think of is, is that online still? <laughs> I mean, um, anyway. I, I, mean, I hate, to, hate to say yes, this. Yes. I guess well, I, I, I'm not going to answer that question. But, um, <laughs> but, I mean, what's interesting is that it was this, well, you know, adultery and you can't really say and blah, blah. And, and so Hannah Rosen is married to the editor of Slate, uh, David Plotz. So I would just say – uh, if my wife submitted that manuscript to my website, I would uh, I would sort of say, uh, which she wouldn't. I would say, um, honey, uh, either A, are you trying to tell me something, or B, uh, I'm really sorry. I know I didn't take out the garbage last night. Is there anything I can do to make <laughs> make it up right. to you, <laughs> other than having you, um, you know, uh, cuckold me intellectually in public? It would be. It's a cool well, idea, though. That, have, that there's an actual. Um therapist marriage counselor who's in favor of this because then you can if you're the if, if you're the person who, who traditionally drags their you know if your spouse comes to you and says listen you know we should something's going on here i think we need to see counseling you go you know you're right i really want to i really i do want to see counseling. i, I want to make this better um say i've got the name of a counselor we could go see <laughs> <laughs> To be proactive here, really. This is. Uh, I, I hear she's really good. By the way, I mean, look, great. look. In very deep terms, if you want to take this sort of more seriously, I mean, the serious truth is, of course, that uh, doubtless uh, we know. I mean, many marriages have gone through the that 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 crucible, and and it is by no means, you know, it is it is obviously people work through it and get through it and come out the other side and. Um, and that can be very noble work to learn forgiveness and to move on for the sake of your family and for and for the sake of something larger. But there's something very striking about the the confluence of these pieces, the one in the New Republic and the one in Slate, which is that it has this. Oh, look, let's be honest. I mean, you know, people die. We're only supposed to live 12. You know, we're only supposed to they were supposed to die at 28. So if they got married at 20, they were only really married for eight years. And then they were, you know, eaten by a rhino. So now that we're, you know, now that we're living uh, much longer, obviously, you know, monogamy is uh, is foolish because, you know, who could uh, who could uh, maintain, you know, interest over over that uh, long a period. So therefore, 
you know, basically I can do whatever the hell I want because that's just the way it is. And no yeah, so- contractual, no emotional contract, <clears throat> no sacramental relationship, nothing like that should take the place of, you know, of sort of fulfilling your, you know, uh, fulfilling your, yeah, you know, uh, you know, sort of just t- t- scratching the itch that you feel at any given moment. There, there, are, there are a couple things. Like, first of all, I hate these pieces. These pieces are like <laughs> such a friggin' cliche. And whenever they come out, they are always touted as this like brave truth telling kind of thing. And yet you can go back to the friggin' philosophs and find people talking about getting rid of monogamy. You know, when Michael Lerner, Schnorr that he is, got married, the cake read smash monogamy. Um, I mean, this is just such an old left wing hippie trope that they keep trying to bring out. And first of all, any piece that tries to undo a 5,000-year-old institution by quoting Cameron Diaz, you know, <laughs> is going off, getting off to a friggin' bad start. And second of all, I haven't read the whole thing yet because I don't have to. But one of the things, because it seems like in the subhead, something about swans mate for life and beavers mate for life, humans not so much. Um, I cannot stand all of these pieces. You find them every six months. Someone writes a piece about how humans and their mating habits are more like bonobos but less like orangutans and more like friggin' chimpanzees and yet if you tried to make arguments about morality and almost yeah. any other sphere of life invoking the authority of friggin' animals that drone their own crap at each other um and that's when they're be, being nice yeah you'd be laughed out of the room <laughs> you know chimpanzees when when male chimpanzees want to get rid of uh, another chimpanzee who's a competitor or a problem for them, they bite off their testicles. I am supposed to look to these creatures as that was how- actually on Michael Lerner's wedding cake too. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> as moral arbiters, I mean, it's just so. And meanwhile, this is so such self indulgent one percenter crap, right? This is for people who can afford marriage counselors to tell them it's okay to cheat. This is not advice for people at the lower ends of the economic distribution, <laughs> desperately need the institution of marriage to get by and to raise healthy children. And it is so selfish for people to do this stuff and pretend as if their park slope values are exportable to every one of 311 million people in this country. It well, is, but by, it the is, way, <clears throat> by the way, of course, <clears throat> that's the ultimate you know, hypocrisy and irony here, which is, as, as many people have detailed, of course – uh, on the one hand, uh, there is uh, the cutesy article writing in which these sorts of things are claimed by by the one percent and and you know the highly educated and all that. And then there are the lives that, in fact, people, the park slopers and people like that live, which, as David Brooks often says, are what we would consider astoundingly conservative. You know, they're, they're married, they stay married, they have an immense amount of social capital, they build, they live in communities that are, you know, self-supporting and self-sustaining. Um, and, and they are then at the same time kind of um, uh, retailing uh, this ideology that, as Jonah says, is incredibly ruinous for people who do not have the social and political advantages um, that they have whose lives are not as rich, who do not live, who live in a, a greater degree of chaos and a greater degree of uncertainty and can't afford, um, can't afford to entertain the notion 
that you know they should that they that it's okay for them not to defer gratification and to you know make long term choices and not satisfy short term wants. Right. And so <laughs> and so the problem here is <clears throat> it's all cutesy when you're doing it, but you don't really mean it. And the problem is that you know culturally. Um, there's no such thing as this stuff not really being meant because somebody picks it up and it's not – you know it's like the classic thing where sure, it's fine for people in Hollywood to have you know babies out of wedlock because they – you know I mean to a movie star to have a baby out of wedlock, you know she's worth a hundred million dollars. She can have help around the clock and 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 if the kid you know has – the kid is a little screwed up, then fine. The kid will have to make its own way. It's another – to sort of uh, again retell this notion that out of wedlock birth um, isn't a disaster and a calamity for millions upon millions of people who end up immiserated, poor, and without the means to take proper care of themselves or their children. I think Charles so, Murray's line has it. You know, Charles Murray had the best pithy summation of this whole problem, which is that the problem with elites in this country is they're afraid to preach what they practice. That's 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 exactly it. And you know, it's funny I because just the fact that two two married guys, this seemed to really hit a nerve here. You guys get kind of upset. No, I mean <laughs> this whole monogamy thing. I myself find it an outdated. <laughs> no, like, I mean, what I what I love about it is that it, it takes something that that it's truly this. It's that the, none of the, the the people who wrote the piece will not live by those standards uh, for probably more than uh, two years or the first flying plate. And everybody knows it, right? right? Everybody knows this is like all you can do is sort of say, "Okay, enjoy." Yeah, but yeah, but you know, I was, uh, I was, um, I've been reading over the past couple of years this incredibly long, you know, one of the greatest books, uh, one of the greatest books of, of of Western civilization, which is the memoirs of the Dukes de Saint Simon, who was a courtier. Oh, yeah. oh I read the, those. Those are great. They, by the way. They are so great are that so you know great. they are so great. It is the it is it's it's this portrait of the it's court. real Game of Thrones. <clears throat> Close. Anyway, it's this portrait of the of the of the court of Louis the Fourteenth over you know this course of like twenty years, and so this is Louis the Fourteenth, right? This is the seventeenth century. This is, you know, um, everybody has three or four families. And you know one of the one of the things that the Duke de Saint Simon learns is that if you want to get in good, this is true. We want to get in good with Louis the Fourteenth. You try to do things that will enhance the social standing and power of his illegitimate children. That's who what he wants yeah. is to advance their interests. Why? Because he was married off when he was eleven, ten or eleven, to some other princess. <laughs> with whom he has his legitimate children, for whom he feels no connection whatsoever. And the children, his illegitimate children, are the children of the women that he actually loved. And so he actually loves them more than the children he had as a result of his, you know, duty. He can't divorce his wife. He's a Catholic and, you know, it's the he's the king and it's the 17th century or 18th century. So, um, but I mean, this notion that, you know, Oh, now, now we live longer, so we can't have monog- you know. This was completely accepted in you know at the yeah. high ends, at the high ends of you know restoration well, the, society but, in England. But, after but those after, children, Louis's children, all, all royal children are considered public property. 
they have a public function. So it's a slightly different – and that, that marriage is a public mar- – a marriage that everyone has a stake in, in civil society. I mean a little stake, right? Right. So it's a, I just think it's a difficult, you know, it's like as I say it's it's all fun and games until, you know, it's all fun and games until somebody takes somebody up on some ill-advised piece right. of cutesy, you know, oh, you know what? Here's an interesting thought that I thought of the other day in my journalism so that I could get a piece published <laughs> and have a lot of people tweet it out. My you, know, you know what? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's okay. Why not kill why not kill somebody? I mean, look, People die all <laughs> well, the time. Well, didn't say that. <laughs> no, I, I know. No, but I'm just saying, if you want to go reductio ah, ad absurdum, you really would do this like, well, you know, here. what? No, no big deal. Uh, my favorite moment from those books, um, which is those, it will be a little bit of a departure, but I, I, it just still makes me laugh because I, I, uh, I read it in English and then I read it in the first, the first volume in, in, in English, the first volume. In, then I read it again in French, which I didn't quite get, but – close there's one moment where there's a, a lot of intrigue going on of course nobody had phones or faxes or emails so they had to run around like you had to run to everybody's house and you had to do it really quickly you had to do it before the other news got there because you had to arrange everything and uh there was one fixer there he was kind of the, the fixer of the time and <clears throat> the, a doctor and on a saturday morning he showed up at the duke de saint simon at his house with his with his mother he was doing some scandal with his mother and he had just arranged the, he just put the scandal to bed, but he needed to get to her in time to um, so that she would she knew what to say. And and uh, he uh, uh, but unfortunately, as the Duke writes, kind of really kind of elegantly, kind of in weird, elegant, uh, super archaic French, and in the English is archaic too. Um, Saturday mornings he had his lavement, which means his um, his enema. He had a, a Saturday morning enema, <laughs> but he's in such an urgent. State trying to get this this scandal settled, he races to the Duke de Saint Simon's mother's house uh, without having evacuated his lavement. So he shows up at the door, and she lets him in. And he quickly he runs he's, he runs quickly to the closet, wherein he uh, wherein he leaves an action so large it could scarcely be contained by the bowl. <laughs> And then the <laughs> it is the most amazing. It is the most. And the next paragraph book. is is uh, um. But we were all grateful to the doctor something something for his uh, his other actions that day. Oh, it's just these it's diaries so like that and the diary <laughs> the diary of Samuel Pepys, which was sort of contemporaneous, yeah. you know, six the sixteen sixties in London. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like this notion that people didn't wrestle with these ideas. You know, this is all we're look we're all modern today. So we you know like this is preposterous, and it's all this. I'm not bourgeois. Oh really? You're not bourgeois. Congratulations. So that's why you're not you you while you're talking about how monogamy is you know is uh, knowing that you it's really a moral is a moral trinket. You're yeah. not at Home Depot on a on a Saturday. You know, look buying buying you know new fixtures for your you know new lighting fixtures for your hallway. And knowing that you don't want to appear bourgeois is one of the most bourgeois things you could possibly be. <laughs> uh, I, I remember just to, as a kind of an example. I remember a friend of mine, uh, a writer. Uh, you you actually know him, uh, um, John Tom, Tom Leopold, and he he uh, you know he had a little back trouble at one point. He went to a chiropractor, and uh, and he came into the office. And we're all, you know, the writers are sitting down and he keeps his fellas. I go into the chiropractor. I was like, great. Apparently, we've all been sitting wrong. But what? <laughs> we've been sitting wrong forever. People just sit wrong. I don't know how that happened. They just sit wrong. 
said, well, how, how, how are you supposed to sit? And then he said, like this. And he sat gingerly on the edge of a chair and then slid himself into the back. Like that. <laughs> Everything's better now that we know how to sit. <laughs> like, like, oh, people have been sitting for, well, ever, since, as long as they've been standing, right? <laughs> um, maybe even longer, frankly. Um, so, by the way, I think we need to end. I think we need to end this uh, discussing, of course, uh, the most important topic in the history of Western civilization, which is the J.J. Abrams reboot of Star Wars, which announced uh, much of its cast uh, over the last week, uh, including the really brilliant uh, uh, singing actor Oscar Isaac, who was the star of Inside Lewin Davis in some part. And Adam Driver, the male uh, star of the aforementioned girls in some Wait, other part. The Davis guy's going to be in it? Yeah. Oscar okay. Isaac Lewin. And then it turns out that all of your old favorites are coming back for another tour of, uh, you know, of the Empire. So uh, so Harrison Ford will be in it and uh, and Mark Hamill will be in it and Billy D. Williams will be in it. And my real question is – has anyone – have you actually laid eyes on Carrie Fisher lately and heard the sound of her voice? I mean the only thing that I can think that Carrie Fisher could possibly play in this, in this new version is the, is the new owner of the Moss Eisley bar. <laughs> it's like uh, she's like coming in and go, oh, yeah, what do you have? By, uh, well, down there at the end of the bar is my friend Penny Marshall. Penny, uh, what? You know, <laughs> what? I don't know. Got any? Got any? Got any blue? Got any blue milk for these guys? We don't need any makeup. Uh, um, I don't. Uh, that's the nicest thing you could possibly say at this point. My suggestion was that she will be Mrs. Jabba. <laughs> she took over. They got married. Eventually, she came back, and it's like, listen, I forgive you for all the this in chain stuff. And now I'm back, and uh, and they get married, and you know, that, and he dies because I don't think they have a long life expectancy, and then she takes over because she, you know, she can wear the outfits. I, I think the answer to all of this is CGI. They will take <laughs> they will take her head and they will put it on some other body, and even then, there's still some work to be done. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, it sounds to me like it's going to be the sci-fi equivalent of a very special edition of the Love Boat. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just right. like, why Lando Calrissian? Wait, is that Lando Calrissian? Lando, <laughs> what a nice hotel you're running here, Carl this Malden. Is- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and it, it's, yeah. you know what I love about it? Is it gives me a chance to do comedy. Like, yeah, but you know, you're on the love boat. But Dantooine, <laughs> exciting and new. I mean, you know, this thing is. Here's my my guess is that you know the first twenty minutes because J.J. Abrams is very good at establishing atmosphere and feeling and sort of oh, hitting yeah, hitting hitting the emotional sort of the emotional notes that the fanboys will love for about twenty twenty five minutes and then it is going to be absolutely awful. Having said that, there's no way that it can be as bad as you know the last Star Wars movie. You know, uh, you know whatever that was called. Uh, what was it called? Revenge uh, of the Sith or something? Revenge yeah. of the Sith and something. I mean, which was which was very clo- which was which was the well. Aside from now, the, the, the last two, were the, the worst. worst. What? Yeah, I think the first reboot was the worst. The one that introduced. Oh John. no 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 no! Compared to the last one, the last one is the worst movie. Has is has the worst script ever. 
No, that's, that's the, the worst one, script ever. That's not that's, true. Not the worst. That's script the one ever. that has the the worst line ever written. Is that the one with the, the "Hold I me, Sistan? Anakin, hold me <laughs> as you did by the lake at Naboo"? I well, think now you're that selling remains, it, though. I gotta say, that yeah, you are the I, worst. The worst line ever written. I'm sorry. There's never been a worse line than that ever written. Hey, I, I know this is complete. I know we're ending here, but there was one thing I thought we were going to talk about. I don't know why I thought this, but I assume we're going to talk about Donald Sterling at some point. And I don't want to get oh. into the whole okay. grand issues thing. But the funniest thing I've seen on Twitter in the last month, at least, um, was an excerpt from one of his uh, depositions. <laughs> oh, I saw that. Okay, so the, the, the excerpt goes, Sterling saying, he's saying, look, I'll just be honest with you. I, I like it when, you know, I, I cheat. I'd step out on my, you know, my girlfriend. I like it when I'm in a limo and a girl gets completely naked and she talks dirty to me and she does dirty things. And he's going on about this for a while, about how he likes that, how he licks him. She licks her and all, and all this kind of stuff and gets borderline hardcore. And, and he keeps going, look, that's just me. That's what I like. And then the question from the lawyer is, Sir, the question was, is this your handwriting? <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought it was the funniest thing I have seen in years. I mean, just... <laughs> you know what I'm, is giving heart... you, I'm giving you context right now. You, you know what is heartbreaking? <laughs> you know what is heartbreaking is that is that is that Dan Jenkins, um, who wrote, you know, without question the funniest books about sports ever written semi-tough life its own self dead solid perfect uh the franchise babe a whole series of comic novels about about professional sports and a lot of what he wrote about in these books is about the psycho the psychosis of team owners and he's now 85 years old and he's just written a memoir and he's obviously out of the game but what he could have done with Donald Sterling, yeah. I mean, oh you know, what he could have done with Donald Sterling is just beyond all reckoning. Because, of course, that's the, 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 the funniest part about all this is, uh, you know, after all this rage, it's it, people standing up and taking off and, you know, he should be killed and he should be all this. And, you know, in the end, what we have here is clearly some some plot that we don't yet know the contours of in which this young woman had this long game to set him up, to tape him over a long period of time to, to get the goods, you know, sleeping with him to get the goods and then drop this giant bomb on his head so that the, so that he should lose the team. Who who why she came up with this, who, how it was set up. Um, you know, it was they all. Everybody knew that he would eventually say something that would get this done because this didn't come out of nowhere. It's like, oh, I just happened to have a tape of twelve hours of conversations. No, no, she's a had biographer, I think. That was uh, that was her official job. Well, I, it's, I read that uh, what's his name, Sneed, or whatever that guy's name in Chicago. He's he wrote that this might have been a tape from a marriage counseling or related couples counseling. Maybe it was right, this so Perel. She, right, so they should have gone. He, they should have gone to Perel. <laughs> right. So she right. So she brought in the tape recorder surreptitiously. <laughs> Into the marriage, into the counseling session, where basically what he's saying, if I read, if I really read between the lines, is, you know, I don't want you sleeping with Magic Johnson, which I think is a fair, know, fair request. Anyway, but I mean, you know, and and of course he said it in the most disgusting possible, and obviously he's a he's a repugnant, 
and <laughs> yes. slimy human being. But this is only half the story. You know, this is only half yeah, the story. Also, the story is, is only enhanced by whatever was going on with this woman, V. Stigiano, or whatever her name is, whose name is actually Vanessa Lopez. If, you my, know? if my wife or girlfriend was sleeping with Magic Johnson, the key issue, the most salient issue, wouldn't be that he's black. <laughs> you know, right. you know, it's, it's the sleeping with them that's the problem. You know? That's because you guys are hung up on monogamy. Now we're back to that. Oh, you know what? You're right. You're right. You, we are hung cool up on it. monogamy. I don't know. I mean, we're hung up on monogamy. And believe me, if we weren't hung up on monogamy, you have no idea what our wives would say after this <laughs> podcast was over. So you were, it was not enough of an emphatic denunciation. <laughs> That's right. Yes. I think, it, you know, keep going because we, we could do another yeah, 20 sorry. minutes on this. I'm sorry, honey. Let's go see a counselor. I think I have a name of somebody in my wallet. Esther Perel? <laughs> yeah. She's well, anyway, so now that we've given Esther Perel like dollars <laughs> worth of free publicity, I guess we should uh, wrap things up. And, of course, it's now time for Jonah to tell us the 18 places where he is speaking. Exactly. Um, no, I, I don't have any um, open. <gasps> what? I, I, I don't have any open to the public stuff. I am going to Branson later this month. Oh, are you opening? Uh, are you opening for um, for uh, that guy with the the ventriloquist with the with the terrorist puppet? No, I'm gonna do. Uh-oh. I'm gonna open for Yakov Smirnov. Um, ah, <laughs> um, that's right. He's got the theater there. Um, but uh, no, I'm giving a speech Su- down there. Suddenly, 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 a very I would say a very topical comedian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he yeah. still has his accent. Oh, uh, I'm sure he can put he this on. He doesn't need to lose the accent. So does Kissinger. Yeah. Good for business. <laughs> uh, so you will be in Branson. I will be in Branson, um, but for not for open for public. And uh, and tonight is the uh, if we're dating this, but this week was the American Enterprise Institute's prom, which that's why John is in Washington D.C. as we speak. Oh wow! And it's uh, quite an exciting thing. It's much better than the White House Correspondents Dinner. Sure, it is. It is much better than the White House Correspondents Dinner. Um, but that's a low uh, bar. Um, you know, because instead of, uh, you know, gawking at Zoe, uh, Zoe Deschanel, um, we, we all get to, you know, gawk at, uh, Charles Arthur Murray, Brooks. Yeah. Arthur, <laughs> Arthur Brooks and Charles, and Charles Murray. Hey, uh, yeah, I hear it's going to be great. Thanks. Thanks for my invitation. Sorry. I couldn't make it. Oh, wait, you didn't invite me. Well, you know, I, I told them to invite you, Rob. I told them. Yeah, they were not happy with the magisterial uh, biography of Trotsky. That's the well. They, they they well they didn't know that you read read Saint Simon in the original French. So just the first volume. Just, that's it. Just that's the, the problem. Just, just AI snobs. Volume. It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> well, oh, where, um, I wish it's going to be like. I, I, Rob, a, what about a, you? Is you it a dinner? Any... I have nothing. I have nothing. No, here's I. I will be appearing at the um, at the Danube Institute. In uh, in Budapest in a few weeks, which is actually this is actually true. Uh, I'm going next week to uh, or this week to the Oslo Freedom Forum, ah. which is this thing in Oslo for freedom people fighting for freedom around the world, um, put on by Thor Halverson. Thor Halverson, so, yeah, so interesting. I mean, I've never been. I went to the one in San Francisco. It was sort of interesting, and he wanted me to come to the one in Oslo, so I said yes. And then I then I'm going to be uh, gone for about a week and back. Back, I mean, in production. But this is the fun of being in production on a show that you're not really responsible for every single day. You can kind of scoot out. 
Um, well, I'm in uh, I'm I'm in uh, production uh, for my daughter's uh, uh, musical, my ten year old daughter's musical show, which will be uh, which will be uh, uh, hitting the boards uh, on May May twenty first in, in New York City. And no, you 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 can't come. What is it called? Um, it's called Sunshine. It's a musical based on an unknown, uh, justly unknown Ludwig Bemelman story. <laughs> um, but uh, but so yeah so she will be she will be performing but uh, I will I will not be performing and of course where I w- I will I am very happy uh, to report that as Jonah is opening for um, Yaakov Smirnoff um, I I will be I have uh, will be opening uh, for uh, Rip uh, Taylor uh, mm. who is coming back from the dead. To perform to throw confetti on me at at, at Chuckles in, in in West Nyack, uh, New York. Um, well, if that doesn't cure your monogamy, I don't know what will. And let me tell you, Rip Taylor. You know, Rip Taylor came back from the dead because, of course, um, now that now that uh, now that we have gay marriage, um, he he can you know now <laughs> marry uh, Gallagher. Hmm. Um, so I, I think it's very very moving. I didn't know Rip was gay. <laughs> All right, guys, we're gone. Yeah, yeah, we got to go do some work here. Okay, <laughs> uh, fellas, great to talk to you. Yeah. Enjoy your enjoy the prom that I wasn't invited to. I promise not to show up like Carrie later. Keep I'll your eye on the door. I'll put you on the list for next year. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, thanks, guys. Right, fellas, see you soon. Bye bye. I'm so. the conversation.